Welcome to The Hut Near The Bog, the podcast where a life and business coach and a philosopher discuss various aspects of human existence by drawing on the wisdom of Ireland as well as their own expertise and life experiences. Martin O'Mara was an Irishman, an adopted Australian and a hero of the First World War. He was a recipient of the Victoria Cross Medal, the highest honour awarded for gallantry in the face of an enemy that a British and Commonwealth soldier can receive. In this episode, Sheila speaks to two of Martin's closest living relatives, Bill O'Hara and Noreen O'Mara. We learn about Martin and the circumstances which led him to receiving the Victoria Cross. Noreen and Bill tell Sheila about Martin's visits to Ireland in both 1916 and 1917 and the frosty reception that he received during the latter visit. Our guests then discuss Martin's breakdown in 1918 which resulted in him being committed to an Australian mental hospital, a situation which only exasperated his condition. In the final part, Noreen and Bill talk about the efforts which have led to Martin being finally recognised in Ireland for the hero he was and about the wisdom that we can take from his incredible story. So Noreen, this evening I'd like to begin with yourself and the question I'd love to ask you is who is Martin O'Mara and why is he so important? Well Martin O'Mara, uh, well he was my great uncle. He, uh, he was born in Lara in, in Lissanan, son of a um, farming family. Uh, when he grew up he he left home because it was a big family and uh, couldn't support another adult in the house. So he travelled around Ireland a bit. Then he went to Liverpool briefly. And then he emigrated to Australia. We, we think he, um, he worked in the boiler room of a, of a ship. And that's how he, he worked, because obviously he didn't have, have the money to, to pay for his passage to Australia. Um, once in Australia, he, he travelled around getting work wherever he could. He was always involved in, um, in tree work, um, a sleeper cutter for, for the railway. Um, and he ended up in Western Australia on uh, building a railway that went through, through the bush. And again, he was a sleeper cutter, so hard physical work. They would um, live out in the bush in, in tents sometimes or just in shacks. Um, so this was sort of 1912, 1913, 1914. And the war started in 1914 and Australia became involved in 1915. And at this point, he decided to follow a lot of his friends over there and he joined the army, the Australian army. And a few months later, he, he set sail. They went to Egypt for a while and then... In 1916, the summer of 1916, he found himself on the Western Front, just as the Battle of the Somme was starting. And he was, he was in the trenches. He was a, a scout. And the job of a scout was to basically to spy on the enemy, to go out under cover of darkness into no man's land and creep up on the enemy, see what they were up to, see where their machine gun posts were, what the condition of their trenches was, uh, 
what the barbed wire was like and maybe capture a German or two if they had a chance. But you can imagine what, what no man's land must have been like. It must have been literally full of dead bodies and wounded. And so while he was going about his job as a scout, he, he came across all these wounded men and he brought many of them back to safety. It wasn't part of his job. That was the job of the stretcher bearer. Um, but he rescued over the course of about three days, he rescued at least 20 men, some Australians, some British, and in the most indescribable conditions. Um, and how, how he survived, uh, well, I don't know. Um, and as well as that, um, his battalion was basically cut off at one point and they, they were out of ammunition or the ammunition that they'd got, it was buried. There'd been a bomb and, and it had just been buried under earth. And of course the enemy was, was approaching. They were, they were under attack. They were in danger of being overrun, but the officer in charge, it was so dangerous. He, he just didn't want to, order any of his men to go and get more supplies but martin volunteered to get those supplies and twice he went out under this hail of bullets and artillery and staggered back carrying heavy cases full of ammunition and bombs and flares and really they were able to fight their way out of danger so again he saved many lives um he continued uh, in the army until till the end of the war. Uh, he, obviously, for those actions that I've just explained, um, he, he was awarded the Victoria Cross. He was given the Victoria Cross by King George V at Buckingham Palace. So, you know, he was a real hero. Um, just before the end of the war, he, he was sent back to Australia. He didn't really want to go, but he, he was basically sent back to help with recruitment really. And when he arrived back in Australia, he, he suffered uh, a terrible nervous breakdown um, to the point that, you know, he was violent, he was suicidal, he was difficult to control and they didn't really know what to do with him. And, and they just, they, they locked him up in a mental hospital. But this was the very end of 1918. And Sadly, he spent the rest of his life in a mental hospital. He died not till 1935. Yeah, it gives us a great sense of his story, to be honest. And there was a, a, a lot of heroic deeds and at the same time, a very sad story in the end. It was a very sad story um, and, and, you know, and, and really tragic. Okay. Um, and you, are, you ask why he's important. Yes. Um, well, he, I think he's important because, because he, he was a hero and, and we all need heroes, really. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of bad in the world. And if you read the newspapers and watch TV, you, you would be forgiven for thinking there was nothing but bad in the world. But actually, there's, there's a lot more good than bad in the world, I think. And I think, you know, he, he acted completely out of compassion. His acts were completely altruistic. Um, and I just think we, we should remember acts, acts of compassion and goodness like that. I think we need to remember them and we need to celebrate them. And of course, historically, 
he, he was an important figure as well because he got his Victoria Cross in 1916 when there was so much happening in Ireland. So he's important for, for all kinds of reasons, I think. Excellent. Laurie, that was an excellent account of who Martin O'Mara is. And I think it will give the listeners a real sense of who he is. And I would also like to ask Bill, who, who's Martin for you, Bill? Basically, Martin to me was my great uncle. He was a very brave, courageous young man. Never been in a war, probably never seen a gun in his life before. He had the courage to immigrate to America or sorry, to Australia, to better himself in life and to work, as Noreen says, in railways in various different jobs. And uh, he would not have been very happy to be so far away from home or far away from his mother, but he was just them years away of making a living and try to, try to better himself. He worked on the soaker on the ship because he didn't have the money to go across in New Reckons. That was the hardest work ever he'd done, even harder than being in the trenches. Thank you for that, Bill. And Bill, right. I'd like to ask you the next question, and that is, what kind of family did Martin come from? Martin came from a big family. There was 11, I think, in the family altogether. Five of his, sorry, four of his siblings died when he met to a very young age. He was only 17 when his father died. His mother had to try and bring up the remainder of the family in a very small farm in Shara, which he did do. Them times, of course, there was no electricity, no water, no nothing in the house. And she would have suffered really bad with the help of Martin and the rest of the family to try and make a living by working for various different farmers around share it along with yourselves and live his various different places and of course he went on to Liverpool to try and make a living which we're not quite sure how long he stayed there for and uh, he used to send money home to his mother and all the rest of it and uh, at that time his mother was actually in serious trouble financially their farm was rented with, or hackers were the landlords of the farm and she actually ended up going to court over the farm because she couldn't pay the money for the farm. But however, she held on to it. And over the years later, the land commission took over and actually gave her a few more acres of land. Okay. Yeah, she sounds she, like a very courageous woman, Bill. A very courageous and hardworking, well, not just in her own, every family in the country was probably suffering the same at that time. And uh, that's how it's, that's how Martin has was, got the courage and bravery to follow in his mother's and father's footsteps for working and get on with it. Noreen, have you anything to add to what kind of family did Martin come from? Well, they, they were, they were a, a family of nationalists. They were a God-fearing family. But like Bill said, they were like so many other families in Ireland, living really close, close to poverty. Uh, from from centuries of oppression, really. Uh, Martin was the the youngest surviving child of the family. I think the two children born before him died, and I think a child after him died. So he would have been a very precious child to his mother. And, and I think perhaps because of that, they had a particularly close relationship. 
he seemed to, I think he mentioned it in a, in a letter that he wrote uh, to a friend at around about the time that his mother died. I think he said something like, um, uh, when your mother dies, you lose your, be your best friend. So, yeah, I think it was a very close relationship that he had with her. Thanks, Noreen. And Noreen, when he came back to Ireland after winning the Victoria Cross, I think he came back in 1916 and again in 1917. Do you know anything about the reception he received? Well, it seems there is some evidence that's just been handed down through word of mouth that he received a much warmer reception in 1916 than he did in 1917. And in a way that's understandable because attitudes were hardening in Ireland by then. The Easter Rising had been put down brutally. The leaders had been executed. And there was a, a, a sort of a, grounds, a groundswell, a, a rising tide of nationalism. For the majority of Irish nationalists, traditional attitudes of hostility towards the British Army were temporarily ceased at the beginning of the First World War. The appointment of the Loyalist Paramilitary Organisation, the Ulster Volunteer Force, as the 36th Ulster Division in the British Army, and the risk that this posed to the implementation of the Third Home Rule Bill caused the majority of the nationalist population and their leaders to pull behind the British war effort. Things began to change when people realised that the war would not be over by Christmas 1914 as originally promised, and by Easter 1916 attitudes had toughened against the British Army. However, at this point these attitudes were still moderated by the fact that hundreds of thousands of Irish fathers, brothers and uncles were serving at the front. It would be the brutal way in which the British authorities put down the Easter Rising and the subsequent execution of its leaders that radically changed the political and social landscape in Ireland, making it a very difficult place for servicemen like Martin to be in 1917. Um, so you can kind of understand that by 1917, quite a lot had changed in Ireland. And there was, when he came back in 1917, there was a big reception planned for Martin. Now, it wasn't organised by the people of the parish. It was organised by what I would call, I suppose, the landed gentry, if you know what I mean. Yes. Um, and there may well have been some ulterior motives in this reception. I believe one of the men that organised this reception was... A, uh, senior in the British Army and, and was involved in recruitment in Ireland. So I think they might have seen this as a way of, of recruiting uh, more men, more Irishmen um, into the army. Um, and anyway. Was that 1916? I think I believe that was in I believe it was in 1917. And I'm not quite sure about that. I might have got that. I might have got that wrong. But there was definitely a reception planned for him that he didn't actually turn up for. And there were, there were excuses made that he was recalled to his battalion. But I think it's quite possible that Martin himself didn't feel very comfortable about that. Possibly because he was just didn't like didn't really like the limelight and he was quite a shy sort of person. But I think also he might have felt a little bit uncomfortable about the whole thing, um, about um, this idea that they were being, that he was being used to, to, to recruit more men into the army. 
and also it might have been a little bit uncomfortable for his for his family as well and he might he might well have been aware of that um yes. and also you know he was he was quite a shy person he didn't even want to go to buckingham palace to receive his victoria cross so he he definitely didn't didn't like the limelight okay. But, but there is some evidence, yes, uh, there is some evidence that um, he was somewhat given the cold shoulder when he when he went to Ireland uh, for the last time, as it turned out, in 1917. Okay. And what effect do you think this might have had on his family, Noreen? Well, it must have been rather confusing for them, I would have thought, and and rather awkward for them, because, well, they'd got a hero in the family, um and under normal circumstances you you know you'd want to celebrate that and and talk about that but um i suspect that they they couldn't really do that because because of the political situation at the time so i think they found them may well have found themselves in, in a rather difficult position with, with martin um getting the victoria cross and and coming back to ireland um, right in the midst of this tide of nationalism. Okay, and do you think it would have had an effect on Martin as well as the family? Well, I suppose it would have done, really. I've never really considered that. But yes, the, 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 he probably felt a great, a great sense of, of rejection. You know, he had left Ireland, I think, in 1911 or 1912 he'd certainly left left the parish in about 1910 or 1911 um you know so this was a this was a big moment for him to be coming back and then and then to yes be get be given this rather cold treatment by by some people yeah he probably felt rather rejected and, and possibly rather depressed because of it okay and then I might follow on by asking you the question that we know Martin had a mental breakdown after the war. Do you think that this was all due to the war or do you, do you think the rejection he felt um, in Laura and indeed further afield would have been a contributory factor? Well, I, I suppose it might have been a contributory factor. Yes, I, I suppose it might have been, but it wouldn't, of course, it wouldn't fully explain this complete mental breakdown that he had. Um, okay. I, I, I still believe that it, you know, that it, that it was due to his war experiences by, by and large. Yeah, I, I do, but, but it, it might well have contributed. Okay. Could you talk to me a little bit more about the mental breakdown that Martin had and how it impacted on his life from there on in? Well, it, it appears to have been quite dramatic. Um, you know, he had an impeccable army record. Uh, no previous evidence of mental illness that, that, that we know of. Um, he, he arrived back in Australia, as I say, rather against his will, right at the very end of the First World War. And he had to go into quarantine, rather topical at the moment, but he had to go into quarantine because of the Spanish flu. So I think they had to spend a week or two um, in isolation before they could get formally demobbed. And it was it was during this week or so that he was in isolation that he had yeah a very dramatic nervous breakdown. He had to be taken away in a straitjacket, I believe, in an ambulance to a mental hospital. 
um, and, and he was later declared in, insane. Um, and of course, he was treated treated badly, as we, as we know now. He was he was incarcerated. He didn't have any effective treatments at all. There were no, well, there were t- talking treatments available at that time, but they were not clearly not available to him because um, all they did was lock him up, basically. And this was a man who had lived his life outdoors, really, grown up in Lara, the beautiful Irish landscape, went to Australia, worked in the bush, again, wide wide open spaces when he was in the army. He was used to the wide open spaces. So, you know, what's the very worst thing you could do to somebody like that? Lock him up. Of course, that just made his condition even worse Um, and he he spent the rest of his life in mental hospital and and he died in 1935 and I I remember reading his his army records and he was in the first hospital he was in for about three or four years I think and then he got moved to a slightly nicer hospital and it had a garden a sort of a market garden and he was allowed to go out and work in the garden and there was a comment made that that Martin appeared to appreciate this very much. And, you know, it's heartbreaking to read that because if they perhaps treated him like that in the beginning, then, you know, he, he wouldn't have been so ill. Really heartbreaking. Yeah, very heartbreaking is right. And Bill, I'd like to address the next uh, question to yourself. Do, do you think uh, Martin was treated in the appropriate way? first of all in the mental institution and as well I'd like to ask you was he treated in the appropriate way by his native parishioners so if you just gave us a little bit of insight into how you feel he was treated in the mental institution but mainly if you could concentrate on the parishioners please I don't agree with how he was treated on his return to Ireland but I also understand the Irish people's opinion of him he would not have wanted to fall out with his family or friends just because he joined the army. So I do think he was treated bad. He really had no choice but to say goodbye to Ireland when they did. And uh, that must have been very, very rejected by your own people and by your the biggest population of the people around Laura probably did remember there was a big crowd in the ball alley in Laura, but I'm not quite sure how many of his neighbours turned up. Uh, I do did notice that the parish priest didn't come, and uh, Hugh Mary, his brother, I never heard him being mentioned of coming to Laura. But however it was, it was a good turnout. But um, it was the big dignities, as Noreen just said, in in the parish. Uh, that was involved in other organisations around at that particular time. And it wouldn't have went down one bit well with his family or with anybody else. But I still think at the end of the day, he he was a very brave man and he'd done us all great honours. And uh, he didn't join the army one little bit of a grudge against, against Ireland or anybody else. He just... He joined up to make a living for himself and came back to Ireland and expecting, well, I don't think he would have expected to get a good welcome back, but at least I think 
you might have been welcomed back by by what relations he had left in the parish and by some of his neighbours, but what we've been told is he's been rejected by quite a lot of them, and that's why he just walked out and and never came back. So I I do think he was treated bad, yes. Okay. And do you think it had a lot to do with the political landscape at that time, Bill? Oh, it certainly would have, yes. It certainly would have. I mean, it, uh, but um, times were bad and times were tough in Ireland. And it was understandable, as I say, by everybody's opinion that they were entitled to. He was, after all, he was in DIF, which was a part of fighting with the British Army. And it would have been, it would have been probably the downfall of his part in Ireland. But uh, it was regretful. But he was still, an, he was still a local lad, and it was a shame that people didn't really understand that he didn't really go away to win the war with any fault or trouble against Ireland. It was just. He joined the AIF and he ended up where he did at that time. Okay. And obviously he thought it was the right thing to do to to join the army and he did. Okay. But it was a very, very sad, sad story and sad ending for his family as well, of course. He missed them and of course they'd have missed him. And that would be the only reason there was a falling out was just because he was in the wrong army. Okay, and do you think that fallout actually extended to his family, Bill? Uh, I would really think it did, yes. And why do you think that, Bill? Well, I dare say when he left, there was bitter conversations probably to know, did we do the right thing? And now he's gone and there's nothing we can do about it. And everybody is resentful and regrets it moment in time everybody does some things and we all regret them after but uh, anyway things all seem to have got back together with the family in due course yeah and I'm quite sure the family didn't want to fall out with their neighbours either they had to live there no and... no no that's this, this is the awkward position they were in they were between a rock and a hard place I mean, it was uh, very, very hard. In them years, I mean, I know hundreds and thousands of Irishmen joined the British Army and all different things. But uh, looking at it from their point of view, they were fighting for one political thing against England. England did some nasty things in the past. And uh, they wouldn't have forgotten them. And to see a neighbour or brother or sister going away and joining the opposite side, it wasn't easy either. Yeah. I believe actually when he was going to join the AF, one thing did stick in my mind. His mother gave him the, her rosary beads and I believe he had that with him all the way through the war. Amazing, isn't it? And shows how religious a man he was as well. Well, he was very, very religious and what's more, which little bit unusual for an Irish man. He was a teetotaler all his life. Do you, do you feel afterwards the family would have regretted that he went off under such circumstances on his um, Yes, I, I certainly would, yes. Okay. Yes, I mean, he, 
it was never really, see, I was actually young. He probably was talked about in the family, up and down, but maybe talking to my mother, my grandmother and all them, and probably talking between themselves. But we were only very young and we were up and down the Shara, and we didn't really understand. But on many a time, we hear my grandmother saying about poor Uncle Martin, I wonder where he is here, I wonder... Is he still alive even unknown what part of the world is he in and all this? And I believe he was dead for about six weeks before they were even told in Ireland no. at that time. But he could have come back to Ireland, I believe, from the hospital in Australia if there was anybody to take care of and look after. But in them years, financially, there was no way of going anywhere. A poor family trying to make a living best they could to feed themselves. No homes, of course, in Ireland or to look after people in them years. And it, there wasn't really enough that could be done about it. In other words, it's too late to try and put anything right. That's excellent, Bill. It gives us a really good account. And then his treatment in the mental institution, if I just could have maybe a couple of sentences from you on that as well, Bill. Well, it did seem very, very harsh treatment in comparison to what would happen. It wouldn't be allowed to happen now, of course. But uh, he did end up, I believe, violent man, which anybody would be locked up under them conditions 24 hours a day in shackles. I mean, it's, it's hard to believe. I mean, I don't really think you could do it to an animal, never mind a human being. Martin would spend the best part of seven years at Claremont Mental Hospital before being transferred to another facility. Claremont was originally intended as a state-of-the-art mental health institution when built in 1903. However, Dr. Philippa Martyr, a lecturer at the University of Western Australia, claims that despite the initial ambitions of the hospital, with each passing years, the recoveries were fewer and fewer. And by the time the First World War came around, the hospital was already overcrowded. Local press began to report on allegations of bad management, abuse, violence, escapes and unrest amongst the staff. In fact, by the 1950s, there had been seven major government investigations involving Claremont and its administration. Yeah, he was so heroic and then it, it was so much tragedy after that. It was so unfortunate for him. And well, then, go ahead, Bill, sorry. Well, everything was against Martin, really. I mean, he was, his, his mother died just before he went into war. His dad died when he was on his, when he was only 17. He lost his brothers and sisters, himself and his best friend, Mary Murphy, weren't seeing each other in contact anymore. Then he went to war. Then he came back to Ireland and was rejected by his own people. So he he was wounded a couple of times. So really, there was there was nothing at all going for him. He was left Ireland for good, never to return, and that must be probably enough to drive any man insanity. Thanks, Bill. Bill, do you think he made the right decision in in joining the AIF? Um. Well, obviously, in hindsight. He, at that moment in time, he probably did. 
because it was all about making himself a better standard of living. I believe he left uh, in, in the railway because the wages were something equivalent to 10 shillings a week, better than what it was. And uh, it was all about making money and to send a little bit of help, money home to help at home. And uh, But obviously, we, if he knew after the way things were going to turn out, that he was going to be rejected and he was going to end up for 15 years in the mental hospital and he wouldn't have joined. But I personally think he probably did the right thing at the time because that's what he wanted to do. Why do you think he wasn't talked about for so many years? He would have been talked about in different reasons for some by some people. He'd have been talked about in the privacy of his own home by his by his family, of course. We know that in Ireland there was a lot of nationalists joining an organization that had anything to do with England would have been classed as a traitor, which is a word I don't like using. People forgetting that Martin was just an ordinary Irish man, that he would always support home rule. To answer your question, my opinion that is because he joined the AF, they were ashamed of him. So they decided not to talk about him openly. Probably people were afraid that if they spoke to him, people would turn against them. So they would have all preferred that he didn't join the AIF. And not to talk about him, I mean, it wouldn't be the thing to start broadcasting and he wouldn't have Victoria Cross that... uh, they would have been very proud of him, but they just couldn't go out and celebrate it, really, you know. Yeah, very sad. And Noreen, I'd love to bring you in on that one as well. Why do you think he wasn't talked about, Noreen? Well, I think by then, Ireland had plenty of its own heroes and and, and martyrs as a result of the War of Independence and the Civil War. And, of course, Martin didn't really fit in with all of that. He was sort of at odds with that. Um, and then, of course, there was, there was the stigma surrounding uh, mental illness. But like Bill said, I, of course, he was talked about within the family. But, but, but I, I think they probably just didn't, didn't want to talk about him, you know, didn't really want to talk about him, shout about him from the rooftops. Um, you know, because of because of the political situation with Ireland, and like like Bill said, some people would have would have considered him a traitor to, to to their cause. So I think they just got into the habit of of not really talking about him, and I think he just quietly was forgotten in in the parish as a whole. Not by the family, of course, but within the parish, he he was just forgotten about. Okay. And Noreen, can you remember him being talked about by your dad uh, quite a bit? Oh, very much so. Yes, very, very much so. Um, really, one of my earliest memories growing up is, is his photograph on the mantelpiece. And I remember it because it was the only family photograph that we had in the house on display of this, you know, handsome chap. 
Um, and I remember dad talking about him, um, of course, just focusing on how he got the Victoria Cross um, and, and, and also, you know, the tragedy of, of, his, of his mental illness. And I think really as children, we, we, we couldn't really believe that anyone could do anything so heroic. In fact, one of my sisters, Una, thought that dad was exaggerating the story. And she went to our local library and she went to the reference section and she looked him up. And of course, she found that dad hadn't been exaggerating at all. Um, in fact, if anything, you know, he hadn't really done justice to the full story. So, so yes, we, we certainly talked about, talked about him a lot and, and, you know, talked in quite detail about his mental illness and, you know, about him, about him being in, in a straitjacket. And again, I, I remember at the time thinking, surely they wouldn't do something like that to, to a hero. But then years later, when I finally had access to his, to his army records, seeing that, yes, they did put him in a straitjacket. They did it every day. They did it for many, many hours, you know, like 16 hours a day at times. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. It seems to me, Noreen, that you had the benefit of having a hero all your life in the sense that your dad was free to talk about him probably because he wasn't located um, in Ireland at the time and he, he could celebrate the fact that there was a hero in the family and pass it down to his children, whereas it wasn't as safe in Ireland. Am I right in saying that? Um. I don't, I don't know, really. I, I think I'm sure in Ireland, he, within the family, he was very much talked about. Um, but also uh, in England, we really only talked about him in the family. We didn't talk about him amongst other people very much because he, he didn't really have any particular relevance in England. He was an Irishman who had got the Victoria Cross for Australia. So there wasn't a a great deal of interest in him in Ireland, but there wouldn't be a feeling of antagonism towards him, definitely, um, so that the politics wouldn't complicate things. But, but it, it, you know, until relatively recently, it almost felt like a family secret somehow. It's, it's hard to explain, but, you know, we all knew this incredible story, but hardly anybody else knew it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's amazing. All right. So thankfully, attitudes have changed. And Bill, maybe we'll start with you on this. How do you feel attitudes have changed? Now, the attitudes in Ireland have changed over the years for the better. Some people will have bad memories of Galen Merting following the AF. Other Irish people are still immigrating to England. And a lot of English come over to Ireland. So we're all meddling in together. And uh, so that is how the people have changed with travelling further, maybe a little better education, trying to forget the horrible things in the past and just maybe live for the future makes all our attitudes a little bit better. Okay. Okay. Martin has come to light so much in the last few years. And as you know, there's lots of celebrations now to honour him. So where, where do you think that has come from, Bill? Well, I think it's come from the attitudes of the people. 
more technology, which none of us know really, as Doreen says, anything about the Victoria Cross except little bits and pieces we picked up along the way. But we didn't really know what it meant or what the... Um, how the man actually got the Victoria Cross, or how hard we, we know how, how he got it, but how hard he fought for it and what he went through, and millions of more people like him that got killed in the war. And uh, it's, it has come true, and people have learned to f- not to dwell in the past, but just move on in the future and dwell on tomorrow and Unfortunately, down the years with Martin and his family and all that, he didn't come to life a little bit better to maybe move on instead of thinking about the past. Thanks, Bill. And Noreen, I'd like to ask you that as well, about how you feel attitudes have changed and um, where we're at now, for example, vis-a-vis where we were at um, in the early part of the century. Yes, well, I think it's it's just a coming to terms with the past, really. Um, and I think enough time has elapsed for for people to be able to look back objectively at, at that period of, of history. Um, and of course, relations between Britain and Ireland are now probably better than, than they've ever been, I, w- I would think. Um, and I think people now are a lot more willing to look at events and and look at individuals and and not to prejudge not to prejudge them um i think the generation coming through now um is is a lot less likely to prejudge people that they're more likely to accept people for who they are and and um just try to accept that attitudes vary and you know not everybody is the same but but that's okay um, and, and of course, also with, with the centenary of the First World War, there's just been a lot more interest in the First World War. And I think families in Ireland, in Britain, all over the world are, are starting to look back, research their own family um, and, you know, discover their own ancestors who served in the First World War. And, yeah, the, te- the technology is there. So I think that's, that's really where, where we are now. At the turn of the new century, Martin was rediscovered by local historians researching the history of the parish of Lura and Dura. This paved the way for a pageant where Martin was one of the main characters and this helped bring him and his courageous story to the attention of the broader community. A few years later, a group of parishioners decided that it was high time that Martin was honoured and this resulted in the erection of a memorial stone in Lura Village in 2013. In 2019, Martin's Victoria Cross medal was brought back to Ireland for the first time since he left in 1917. Okay, so obviously it has changed considerably, so much so that the Victoria Cross was brought back to Ireland and people got the opportunity to learn so much more about Martin in the process as well. So that must have been a very proud moment for you, uh, Noreen. It was was an incredibly proud moment and it was a very long time coming. Um, My dad uh, was... I don't know if I mentioned, he was also called Martin O'Mara, named after him. He, during his life, he had tried to get the Victoria Cross 
brought back to Ireland, not for him to keep, but, but for it to be on display for, for the Irish people to, to see. Um, and, and he did try. He did try. He approached the, 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 the authorities in, in Australia to, to get the Victoria Cross brought back to Ireland. Um, so, yes, it's wonderful to have, to have the Victoria Cross back in Ireland now, temporarily. Um, I'm sad that my dad isn't around to see it. I know he'd be, he'd be delighted and, and, and even more delighted. I think he would be at the, the memorial to Martin in Lara. I think that, that would be even beyond his wildest dreams. Thank you, Noreen. And Bill, you might like to come on in on that as well. From the point of view, it, again, it must have been a very proud moment for you and your family. So would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Oh, it was actually a wonderful, wonderful evening in Dublin. And I had to also thank, of course, all the hard work that went into it to try and get the cross to Ireland. But seeing the cross, the little cross in Ireland was beyond my belief and imagination that I would ever see it in any part of the world. But seeing it in Dublin was something I will never forget. And also, as Noreen says, Seeing the plaque in Laura, I was expecting it to be just a small plaque in the wall. I just couldn't believe what I was seeing when I went there. And to bring back, and of course, not forgetting the confession and boxes in Laura has been there for all these years with Martin Dame on it. We used to serve mass all those years ago. The old confession boxes was there then. And I didn't even know what the plaque on the confession boxes was. I didn't know. There's a migrant uncle whose name was on the confession boxes. So how far we've come in that length of time. As Noreen says, it's a pity that there was more of our relations around to see the Victoria Cross. And uh, also I think that any people that had any little grudges against Merton in the past, I think if they've seen the cross in Dublin, the might have changed your attitude completely against the whole situation. Bill, if I could address this to you, I know Martin left a legacy to Laura as well um, through his will. So you you might just tell us what that was and how it was used. Well, he left, um, I think it's 300 and something pounds, which was quite a lot of money in the time. He left it for the restoration of Laura Abbey, which was with Canon Malone, he was there at the time, Lord mercy no more. And then, but when they went to it, it was nearly impossible to, that much money wouldn't have done nothing in it. So they had some meetings, I think they went to the high course in Dublin. And uh, it ended up, the money was moved away from, for that reason, that it wouldn't be valid to have it done. So it ended up going to a spilling of the school in Redwood. I only found out how actually in later years either. Okay. And there was some of his money, I believe, left to some of the younger members, his nieces and nephews in Shara. Excellent. Excellent. So he, he has left a legacy to education as well. In he our left Paris. a legacy to education to Redwood School. Yeah. Noreen, I just meant to ask you, and I forgot to ask you, I'm just wondering about the age he died, just for the benefit of the listeners. Yes, I think he was about 50, actually. Uh, he, was. He, died in, he died in 1935, and he was born, I believe, in, 19, in 1885. So I think that would make him about, about 50, yeah. 
yes. Still a young man. Oh, yeah, very young man, right. So that, that's brilliant. And again, there's one question I would like to ask both of you. And if I can uh, start with Bill. Um, your uncle, your granduncle, great-granduncle Martin O'Mara, uh, BC, um, if he were to join us in the conversation here tonight, Bill, what would you like to say to him? Why do you think you were not welcome home and shunned by your family and friends in the parish? Also, do you have any regrets about joining the army? If you had your life to live over again, would you have gone down the same path as you did do? I bet that you were so proud to receive the Victoria Cross. What was your first thoughts when you heard that you were going to get the VC? And lastly, and finally, would you have liked to be buried with your parents in Laura? Oh, there's so many oh, poignant questions. They're, yeah. They're really, really, obviously, we won't know the answer, but mm. they're, they're fascinating questions, Bill. What? Noreen, what would you like to say to your great-granduncle, uh, Martin O'Mara, VC? Well... For starters, I would give anything to speak to him. I think we we would all have so much to tell him and, and like Bill, you know, so many questions. But I think the main thing I would want to say to him is sorry. Um, really sorry for the way that he was treated after the war. Um, and, and sorry that he was let down by the system. And sorry that nobody from the family was able to rescue him from that hell that he that he had to endure. Um, and I'd want to tell him that he, you know, how proud we are of him, the family and, and that he's remembered now in Lara, um, and that the people of Lara are proud of him. He's recognized now as being an important part of their, 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 their history and their culture. Um, and, and yeah, I, I would want to thank him. I just want to thank him for enriching my own life in, in, in so many different ways. And, you know, my sisters and my nieces and nephews. Um, and yeah, just thank him for his service. Thanks, Noreen and Bill. That they're brilliant. And unfortunately, we never get that chance. But it is nice to reminisce on what we might say to him. And I think even for the benefit of the listeners to know, in Bill's case, so many more questions than answers. And to be able to verbalize it is, is very good. And finally, the last question I have uh, is, what bits of wisdom can we take from Martin's story? Bill, can I begin with you again there? There's an old proverb that says, if you want to discover new horizon, you must have the courage to lose sight of the shore. And I think that proves the kind of a Martin, a man that Martin actually was. He had the courage to leave Ireland. And now, unfortunately, getting back to it again, the people of Ireland thought it was the wrong decision at the time to join the AF, but he had the courage and determination to get on in to get on in life with the hope to better himself. And uh, on his way, he'd have made many, many friends through his friendship and personality, and I believe also his sense of humour, his commitment toward his work, both on the railway and in Ireland. I think was a hell of a lot to be achieved by any man. 
And Noreen, would you like to add your little piece to that? The bits of wisdom that we can take from Martin's story. Well, I think that just that there's more, more good than bad in the world and that in even the, the, the absolute worst situation, the most hellish, awful situation, there, there's, there's acts of goodness and acts of altruism. Um, and that he was driven by, by compassion for his, for his fellow man. Um, that, that's why he acted as he did on the battlefield. He could so easily have ignored those, those wounded men lying all around him. It wasn't his job to bring them back, but, but that compassionate nature meant that he, he couldn't turn his back on them. And, um, you know, where did that, where did that part of his nature come from? Um, I suspect it was something that came from his parents, his mother, his mother in particular, um, that, that close, close relationship that, that they had. And obviously his parents just um, instilled in him, you know, to, to always, to always do the right thing. And, and, you know, that was something that he took to extremes. You know, he always did the right thing. He always did. Like it's one thing that is common throughout his life. He was such an honourable human being and somebody that I believe if he was around today that youngsters would look up to. Yeah, so I, 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 lo lovely wisdom uh, there. So we've come to the end of the journey and thank you so much for giving your insights into Martin O'Mara, VC, our proud hero. Thank you again. Thank you very much, Sheila. Okay. Thank you, Sheila. Folks, we really hope that you enjoyed this episode. Martin O'Mara was a true hero and it's great that he's finally been recognised for his heroism. If you would like to see Martin's Victoria Cross and other medals, they are currently on exhibit at the National Museum of Ireland at Collins Barracks in Dublin. 